Have you ever seen some idiot at the crag free soloing and wondered to yourself just what in the hell is that guy thinking? Well, you're in the right place, my friend, because that guy is about to tell you exactly what he was thinking. So put your rope in the closet where it belongs and grab a chalk bag for your sweaty, sweaty palms. The process is about to begin. Alright folks, welcome to the process. Gotta make sure I'm conforming to the norms of podcasting etiquette here, so at first, a word from our sponsors. Cool, got that out of the way. Thanks job, I love you so much. Uh, this weekend warrior gig has been working pretty good for me. I can wear three different brands of shoes. Uh, those Butora Acros fit my foot like a glove. Uh, for that record... This is one of the very few shoes who have on-sided soloed 12A. Butora, for when your life depends on it. Hashtag shit we like. Meanwhile, you'll pry those mythos from my cold, dead hands. Not sure how many shoes have soloed 512 untied with the toe blown out, but the mythos are one of them. And, let's face it, it's just kind of funny to go solo shit in a pair of Evolve cruisers. Furthermore, you know how every gear manufacturer makes that one thing better than everybody else? My rack is that one thing from each manufacturer. Yeah, my shit's dialed now. Don't want to fuck that up. Granted, not that I use my shit that often, but, well, it all looks pretty rad hanging on the pegboard. I don't always climb ropes, but when I do... I prefer. The whole mix of random shit. <laughs> uh, not sure how many folks remember those Dosakis commercials. Might be dating my age here. Uh, losing the millennial crowd. Or Wait. Am I the millennial crowd? <sighs> I have no idea. Been too busy climbing to ponder that crap. Right. I've been complaining in the intro a lot. Uh, as per standard podcasting protocol about audio quality, and some frustrating hissing. And I figured out what that was. My headphones are absolute complete jingus, so everything is hissing when I use them. In other words, it's not you. It's me. Really. Evan's trying to turn me into an audio engineer, and he says, Dude, this shit is dead quiet. I can hear a steak in your teeth. By the way, I'm the Gordon Ramsay of auto audio quality, so brace yourself. <laughs> now that's a friend, eh? So that's how we figured out the problem. Dude's been an invaluable help and supporter of the show thus far, and as things start sounding more legit around here, you can bet it's his fault. Once upon a time, I read a great book by Hans Florin. It was called Speed Climbing. So yeah, that's right. Hans wrote the book on speed climbing. Anyhow, this book was a how-to, but it was founded 
on the most simple guiding principle I'd ever heard. Rock climbing, you see, is the coolest thing in the universe. Therefore, the only thing cooler than rock climbing is more rock climbing. And logically it follows that we have a limited number of days in life, and a limited number of those days are available for the pursuit of happiness, and each of those days has a limited number of hours within it. And all this means that we have a finite amount of hours in which we can pursue the things which make us happy. Hans goes on to say that you don't have to become a speed climber to read this book, but you can't deny that the only way to maximize the amount of climbing in a finite time is to move a bit faster. So, if you want to maximize the amount of climbing in your life, and thus the amount of joy in your life, pick and choose from this book to take the tips which resonate with you. Now that's a cool concept. A how-to book that's secretly a how-to-have-fun book. I can get behind that any day. So on that note, this episode is about return to uh, balance. After Banana Hammock, I kind of felt like I was finished with the red. At least for now. You know, I'd had my fill of that geology and needed somewhat of a change of scenery. Plus, I'd done everything I set out to do by achieving the dozen-dozen. All this sport soloing was fine and dandy for mental and technical training, but I sure was looking forward to getting some good old-fashioned circuits in before the onset of training season where I just hunkered down and gnarred up in the gym to prepare for more in the future. Generally speaking, Thanksgiving break offers an opportunity to strike out towards parts unknown, take down some fun times. Usually, for me, this has involved a plane flight, which I had really not planned for in the budget. So, I wasn't intending to go anywhere, but a spur-of-the-moment realization wound up leading me to Chattanooga. As it turns out, Chatty is only nine hours from Chicago, which is only two hours longer than the drive to the Red, which meant it wouldn't feel unreasonably heinous after all that long-drive desensitization from the past season. Plus, I had a backlog of podcasts lingering that I could use to get me through the whole round trip of 18 hours. The weather looked awesome, with only a chance of rain occurring during a nighttime period rather than climbing hours. Huh. You know, I've got unfinished business down yonder. Maybe I could clean it up and perform a check-in with some old favorites as a uh, how's-my-driving test to see how much fitter or smoother I've become. So I packed in a hurry and spun tires down the road towards my destination. The Chattanooga Crash Pad. Alright, hey everybody, and uh, happy holidays. I am uh, traveling right now and recording my own segues, because I think that'll be kind of cool. Um, as you can hear, my pet bird is hanging out in my shirt, so everybody say hello to Sunny. Wakey-wake, wakey-wake. Yeah, wakey wake and kiss kiss. You picked those up pretty dang good, didn't you, you little cutie? So, uh, yeah, we're uh, hanging out here by the road. You can hear cars passing by and all that good traveling vibe. And gonna record some segues. So, um, 
Yeah, in uh, honor in this segment of the story where I'm driving to Chattanooga, let's get some uh, driving to Chattanooga music. And, um, yeah, if y'all make this stuff go big and give me a million dollars where I can retire, I'll uh, use some of that free time to get guitar lessons. I promise. seconds. It's about all I can hold it together for. <laughs> Alright, folks. Back to the show. On the way down, I couldn't help but reflect on certain aspects of my former life. This corner of Tennessee and Kentucky is where I used to work during my traveling years as a cell tower climber. And there's loads of towers out there where me and my crewmates had personally performed the upgrades. Early on, I earned the nickname The Professor as a joke because I often went on in long detail about the smallest of questions. <laughs> uh, some things just never change, I suppose. But, uh, Eventually, I owned it, and it became a name of respect. I love those guys. They're honest, and they've got your back. Once upon a time, I landed in the Cincinnati airport and realized to my chagrin that I'd forgotten my wallet in a TGA Fridays locked within Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson terminal. Holy shit. I didn't even know it until I walked up to the rental car counter and they asked for a card to swipe for incidentals. My pocket was empty. Do you have any idea how hard it is to leave an airport with no money of any kind? Well, instead of about sol solving the problem, I got my family to wire money to a location nearby, and my manager expensed a hotel night for me. Meanwhile, my family overnighted a card to that same hotel. Now I just had to figure out how to get out of the airport. Briefly, I pondered, walking while towing my little suitcase behind me, but I was afraid I'd get picked up by the cops or Homeland Security for walking on a freeway and wind up on some kind of terrorist watch list. So I asked the folks at the Delta counter, you know, what would you do? They said they'd probably just sit in the corner and cry. This was a uh, difficult problem to solve. Then they remembered that some asshole tried to give them a tip earlier. Now, mind you, they're absolutely forbidden from accepting tips per corporate policy. We want everybody to be on the up-and-up with the check-in process. But they realized that I don't have any such restriction. I can take a tip from anybody I damn well please. So they took that $20 bill out from the pen cup where the arsehole had stuffed it in anger, and they gave it to me. Awesome. Now I can get a taxi cab. $20 won't get you far in a cab, though. Especially if you're coming from the airport. So, closest they could get me was about 
one mile of my location, or my destination, rather. So, I towed my little suitcase for a mile through the dirt shoulder along the road and arrived about 15 minutes before they closed. I acquired my loan from my family and then had something which could get me food and a cab to the hotel. The next morning that uh, card arrived in the mail, I was able to return to the airport and get my rental car and square everything away. Have you ever played one of those RPG video games where you wind up having to perform uh, about a dozen quests before the innkeeper lets you have a place to sleep for the night? <laughs> yeah. It was about like that. Anyhow, once I'd solved all this, I posted up on the Facetron about it, and all of a sudden my tower dogs hit up my phone to make sure I was okay. That's brotherhood right there. I'd solved the problem, and they were still checking up on me. So as I was passing through Paducah, Tennessee, I gave a salute to the worst cell tower I've ever had to work on, and then swung through Clarksville to make a quick visit to a climbing gym that a friend of mine had built through sheer willpower to serve his community. Clarksville climbing is a cool little place indeed. I didn't have the fortitude to make it all the way to Chatty in this push, as I was running a bit behind schedule on the drive. Furthermore, I couldn't find a suitable place to boondock it in the back of my car, so I caved and looked for a hotel room that was en route to Little River Canyon. I intended to spend my first day at the steep cave-climbing crag known as the Concave. Luckily, I had enough reward points with my hotel group from work that this night was free. It's basically boondocking, right? I guess I'm more of a uh, corporate dirtbag than a traditional dirtbag. Alright, that's cool. Alright everybody, holiday travel is over, made it here safe, and uh, Dad and I are going to noodle on the guitar. Dad, you want to be on a podcast? We're gonna sure, make be glad things. to. We'll try something. <laughs> Alright, let me down a beat. Okay. Pulling into the parking pull-off for the concave, I felt lucky. The temperature was delightful, and I was the first car there. So I drove right on in and tried to rope solo bolt to bolt 
on silverback to warm up. Uh, the easiest thing in the cave is 13A, so I took the easiest thing I could find, 13A. And everything felt hard, though, and I couldn't even do the crux move by itself. Not sure if it was idiot beta or the fact that I've been careless about completion on my core and pulling exercises of late, but <sighs> something wasn't working. I sent this route second go back in the day. But now, it was actually impossible. Climbs in the uh, concave require a lot of tension, power, and raw strength. Due to my failure to follow my programming strictly enough, my core and power seemed gone. While I was stronger and better generally, I'd lost the specificity necessary for this particular place. Shortly thereafter, I had a similarly poor performance on the Word 513A. With my rope soloing kit, I took whippers on both of them. Thanks, Grigri, for not dropping me, little buddy. Gotta admit, this made me feel pretty sad. I did so poorly on both of these routes that <laughs> felt like it just about negated the original ascent. So I needed a pick-me-up, and with only about two hours left in daylight, I had enough time to get to Sandrock for a consolation prize. Once I got there, I soloed 11 laps up to 5.11 minus in the space of about 90 minutes. Freedom. That's what I was looking for. I ran around that place like a squirrel on cocaine in a state of bliss with my shoelaces flying in the wind without a care in my mind, chatting with friendly climbers and tossing snickers from my puppy dog chalk bag, which actually didn't have any chalk in it at all. Made it for a fun time. True story, by the way. Got this cute little chalk bag shaped like a corgi, and it's uh, full of snickers instead of chalk. So whenever somebody seems super nervous, I just throw a Snickers at them. At that point, they're confused instead of anxious, which fixes everything. It's also useful for taller climbs when stumbling upon a party at a belay station and I need to pass them. Holy crap, what are you doing here? Me? I'm climbing. Hey, hey. y'all hungry? You want a Snickers? Uh, mm, wait, well, uh... Yeah, sure. Hey, don't mind if I pass? No problem, man. Just, yeah, carry on. You see, everybody needs that story of the time they met some crazy fucker. And I'm proud to be a service. Surveying the scene from the top of the pinnacle after soloing a lap up comfortably numb, the most famous 5'9 in the southeast, felt free. The same kind of freedom that I felt in Devil's Lake, but with a million times more security and friction. I hate S-words. Should. Supposed to be. The only thing that climbing is supposed to be is fun, and the only thing you should do is follow what stokes your mojo. And my mojo gets stoked by precisely this sort of day. Easy scrambling, with nothing more than shoes and a bit of water. I know this place so well that I didn't even bring a guidebook. There was no pause from the flow. You don't have to climb hard to have fun. 
You don't even have to climb your definition of hard to have fun. Nobody has to climb hard. Just climb. <sighs> Soloing requires a very particular type of headspace. And I'm fortunate that I've developed the sort of mind where I can sustain that headspace all day long, at a moment's notice, whenever I want to. A ten-hour day on the rock is like a ten-hour meditation session, or maybe more of a ten-hour yoga session. Thoughts drift in, and they drift out. I'm busy. I don't have time to focus on them. All that matters is this handhold, this foothold, the twist of my body, and a million sources of input. Body awareness. That's my single point of focus. Folks get caught up in the view of some wise man sitting on top of a mountaintop chanting Om. While that certainly is meditation, at its heart, meditation is just single-pointed focus on something. Whether we're aware of it or not, we all meditate sometimes. When you're sitting in the middle of a stretch, focusing your mind inward on releasing that muscle and causing it to relax and lengthen, well, that's 60 seconds of meditation. Single-pointed focus. If you perform 10 more stretches, well, that's a cumulative total of 10 minutes of meditation, whether you intended it to be or not. That's why yoga is so mentally clearing for so many. It's not the asanas or the poses. It's the mindset. Your mind is calm because you had to calm it to follow those instructions during class and to pay attention to all the subtle details that can make or break your alignment. Each move up the wall is just another asana. The goal of yoga is not severity, but rather to find peace within that severity. It's to put yourself in this strenuous position, but also to find a way to move your body so you may relax as much as possible. Thus, to deepen your sense of equanimity despite discomfort, so that that discomfort dissolves away. And in doing so, you build a skill that comes with you everywhere. I used to feel a lot of pain, owing to the fact that my carcass has been beaten up rather a bit over the years. To keep doing what I do, I had to allow that pain a space of its own, where it could just do its thing and leave me alone. Through neuroscience, we know that pain has a physical component and an emotional one. Learning to control that emotional component so that stubbing my toe doesn't result in a tantrum full of Andra screams and enough swearing to make a tower ham blush, that came bit by bit, 60 seconds at a time, peace within the severity. Climbing to me is likewise a path to peace. What is bodily economy on the wall other than finding peace within the severity? You can't find peace if you're not being economic with your motion. What is mastering the fears involved with heights and falling other than learning to sit with discomfort and learning to let it go so that it does not control you? Yeah, that's right. You're a fucking meditator. Own it. Nowadays, I don't feel pain so much 
I've started performing that same exercise with the sensation of cold. Today is December 16th up here in the uh, frozen north, which is Chicago, and I haven't worn a jacket all season. I've taken this down to 17 dungarees Fahrenheit. Granted, that was only for about five minutes, but that was five minutes of deepening my ability to relax rather than allowing discomfort to rule me. Discomfort of any kind is universal. Mastering any discomfort gives you a base of ability that transfers to other types of discomfort. Thoughts of inadequacy and self-hatred, those are uncomfortable too. These skills from the wall have given me tools and weapons to fight a mind that wants to kill me. Fuck you, asshole. I got shit to do. Ain't got time for your rambling against me. So in short, that's the most useful skill that I've ever developed. The ultimate wisdom that I've learned from climbing is simple. While there are many times in life that it's perfectly reasonable to freak out, I have yet to find one where it's productive. And so, through this practice, I've sort of crafted a crisis response where my mind defaults to a state of calm when the shit hits the proverbial fan, so I can think instead of just reacting. Quite useful when you're 90 feet off the deck and your foot slips. Mind you, I'm not always perfect with it. Sometimes I get overwhelmed, and sometimes my mind carries me off, and sometimes success is less about fortitude and more about knowing yourself and setting up a structure in your life that encourages success. Setup is key. At one point, I realized my distracted self in the morning was uh, forgetting to take my morning medication, so I took that bottle and tied it straight to the door handle of my apartment so that it's literally impossible to forget, no matter how scatterbrained I am when I wake up. When I'm traveling, I set it on the dashboard right by the speedometer. No way to miss it then. When you do what you do and stick to your guns, it's incredible how far you can go. I started climbing by flailing on beginner climbs. Turns out this thing called climbing, just like that thing called life, is more about the long grind and dedication rather than predisposition and unnatural talent. Everything I've gained in climbing came from blood, sweat, tears, and years of grinding. Dave McLeod says that the difference between the pros and us is only about 4%. Not that they're a mere 4% stronger, but that they give 4% more every day. They hold on 4% longer, and they try 4% harder every single time. We know via mathematics and credit card debt that compound interest is one hell of a thing. Just yesterday, during a training session, I was regularly failing on one move of a particular boulder problem. It occurred to me that I was kind of expecting it to happen, so maybe, perhaps, I was letting it happen. So I dug deep and tried it with everything I had. So on my fourth set, fatigued from the prior three sets, I stuck that move and carried on to the top for the first time that day. And I stuck it again during my fifth set, too. That 
is where I got my 4%, not just by carrying out the motions of the exercise. You may not start out with much space in your comfort zone, but if you gain one extra square foot per day, that can add up to many acres over time. In this case, trying hard is a skill, and it's one that I'm not comfortable with on account of uh, the fact that I spend so much time soloing. If you're trying hard on a solo, you're proper fucked. You've done something terribly wrong, and you need to go sit down and have a frank conversation with yourself. I've been told talking to yourself is okay, just so long as your self doesn't talk back. So if I'm to train with maximal efficiency, then try hard is a skill I'll have to develop so I don't leave anything on the table. At present, I live in an apartment that's halfway between the office and the climbing gym. That was basically the only criteria I had while searching for the place. You've got to set yourself up to succeed. Sometimes dedication is less about how much motivation you have and more about how you set yourself up to remove obstacles. I've got that depressive brain which tries to rob me of any joy at every opportunity. So I set myself up where it's easier to do what's necessary to stay happy than it is to skip out on it. In the past, when I lived far from the climbing gym, I set up a bunch of homemade wooden training devices in the basement, which made it look like some kind of dank torture dozen dungeon. Got dozen on the mind. <laughs> set up. That's the easiest path to success. To set up this particular trip for success, I knew I'd need proper sleep. So after my 11-pitch, 90-minute meditation at Sandrock, I went down to the crash pad to make sure I had a bed to sleep in for the remainder of my trip. Alright, old faithful.
this one growls at you. The following morning, I got up suitably early to hop over to Tennessee Wall and meet Lohan at 8.30 in the morning. <laughs> this kid seriously smoked my ass up the trail. And uh, we ran over to warm up on Cakewalk. At 10 minus, that was an old favorite, and some other climb that I can't recall the, uh, the name of it. It all happened kind of fast. Then we walked down to Miss Socrates, a 12A that I was hoping to on-site on gear. The first 20 feet went with no protection on moderate blocks, and then the crux was a vicious boulder problem. I built a nest of gear for safety's sake. Number one camelot, extended from deep within a recess. Uh, number one C3, one of those little guys. Felt minuscule, and I trembled just staring at it. And the smallest offset DMM nut, Sunk in a pod, which fit it about as well as those acros fit my feet, which is to say perfectly. I'd never fallen on one of those tiny little three cam units, only the much larger C4s, and I hadn't followed fallen any since my near death in Yosemite. That's three and a half years. Basically, I'd only been trad-climbing routes that I could probably solo, and this was not such a route. The crux is extremely odd. <laughs> I pulled on and completely freaked out. Lohan hollered up at me, Just say take and figure it out, man. Fuck. No. I down-climbed back to the ledge rest as my brain melted out of my ears. I tried that crux three more times, down-climbing after each one, and then finally caved to saying take, because my forearms just couldn't take it anymore. So I sat there, surprised that the cam held my body weight. Not that there was any reason it wouldn't. This is just testament to how much I was freaking out. My mental game for traditional solo or traditional climbing was shattered in Yosemite, and I'd been so focused on soloing that I hadn't bothered to work on it. Soloing requires trusting yourself, and trad requires trusting your gear. Those train completely separately. After that take, I felt like actually trying the crux. I launched into it with ferocity and terror in equal amounts. I pushed myself straight into a place where I knew I could not downclimb. It was sink or swim. My knot was a whole two feet above the cam, next to nothing. My brain melted out of my body, and terror overcame me as my fingers rapidly fatigued. I knew that I was going to fall. And when I did, I made absolutely inhuman noises. So then, after the safest, no-consequence five-foot fall, I sat there crying lightly for about 60 seconds, the release of that extreme mortal terror when my rope came taut was just too much, and I realized that the 
voodoo magic cam actually held, and when I did, I actually shed tears of joy. That's how afraid of the gear that I had become. I was so afraid that I shed tears of joy due to sheer surprise that it held. Not from an intellectual standpoint, mind you. I knew intellectually that that thing was bomber, but the animal instinct was a whole other issue, and that has to be mastered through practice. You can't logic your way out of it. I tried and flailed around one more time, taking that whipper again, but this time with no breakdown. I didn't climb the route, but falling was a huge success for today. So I down-climbed back to the floor while removing my gear from the wall. On to the next one. So now it was Lohan's turn, and I followed him over to Riddle on the Roof, which apparently contains, quote, the world's most painful finger lock. After a decent amount of trying, he solved the riddle. No send today, but he did figure all the moves out. After this, we moved down to Twistin' in the Wind, a 12C that I reckon will make a good solo someday, but today was not that day by far. The crux sequences off the deck were about as hard as I can crimp, and just too many of them in a row. By the time I reached the crux move, I was far, far, far too fatigued to control it properly. I knew I could make that move every time I tried, but... That's not a good enough metric for the solo. I needed to know that I would do it every time. Before I tried. Not after. In retrospect. Lohan went and spent some more time on the riddle. To commit everything fully to memory. And I took my fatigued fingers for one more burn on Twistin. Just for practice. And just like that, we were done. With... Plenty of time for him to get back home for Thanksgiving dinner. Back at the crash pad, worry began to slip into my mind. Only two days into the trip, my fingers had picked up a lot of fatigue. My skin starting to feel shot. I had to rest tomorrow. Otherwise, I'd be screwed.
<laughs> oh my god. I can't believe I didn't screw that up. Ah. Uh. Oh my god. Alright, fuck yeah. Awaking on day three, with my shot skin and shot fingers, only one destination would do. Sandrock. Light moderates and aerobic fitness, plus one item of unfinished business, a 12A called Blinded by Science. I came in and strolled around on moderate climbs, including the 11 minus Never Believe and the 10 pluses Misty, Cinco de Mile, Pigs and Zen. Feeling warmed up but not fatigued, I returned to the car, grabbed my kit, and rock-hopped to the top of Sunwall. I found a spot to pop in some gear and lowered myself out over by Blinded by Science, and I hitched a knob to make sure my rope stayed center over the line. A couple hours later, when I was de-rigging, I discovered a pair of bolts at the top, centered right plumb on top of it. Meh. Can't be smart all the time, I guess. I top rope soloed it twice, then rested up, top rope soloed it a third time. All this took about maybe 90 minutes. The holds were good, and I felt incredibly ready. Setting a timer for 20 minutes, I passed my camera to a pair of new friends from earlier in the day so they could point it at me for decent ground-up footage. They were newer climbers and incredibly psyched to watch something so uncommon. Pulling onto the route, I felt light and free. Sure was nice to be without the hassle of all that gear. The crux is four moves on in-cut crimps with relatively shitty feet. Climbing it on top rope, I felt like I could damn near campus the moves with no footholds at all, so I knew I was sufficiently stable to solo, even if I cocked it up, which was convenient. As I made the light dead point to the third crimp, and my foot popped halfway through. Bodily instinct took over, I backflagged hard, and connected with my target with smooth economy. Soloing is not a statement that I can do this perfectly, but rather a statement that I can fuck up, and it shouldn't matter. That's an entirely different headspace. Nobody's perfect, and I may be crazy, but I'm not delusional. This was a light day, maybe about ten pitches and most of them very moderate. Taking care not to shift my fingers too much on any of the holds so that I wouldn't rub the skin off. And, and none of my moves that day were hard. There was no pump all day long. While soloing 512 sounds hard, the truth is that soloing should feel easy. This isn't hardcore or whatever. I'm just the laziest fucking climber in town. Only thing special about my genre is that I spend my entire life trying to avoid carrying a heavy pack or performing any move that seems remotely difficult. One down, two to go. Day three was good. I slept satisfied this night. Alright everybody, here's the deal. I'm uh, still on holiday vacation and Dad just left the house for a minute, so... Uh, I'm going to steal his Martin guitar to record this segue real quick. Let's uh, take it for a test drive and see how it sounds.
Uh-oh. Where'd the pick? There it is. And here we go. Day four was to be my last day, and this day was all about Foster Falls, home to an old favorite that I'd soloed eight times already. Satisfaction, at 512A, probably the most well-known route of the grade in the whole region. Aside from that, I had some unfinished business in the right bunker. I'd always wanted to solo Bottled Up Warrior, but never put effort into it because I just wasn't sure if there was a top out. Now, with this whole practice of sport soloing, I didn't have to worry about that. The route goes at 12B, and if you perform an arbitrary eliminate, that ups it to 12C. That's always seemed silly to me, so I had no interest in that. Side note, there does seem to be a top-out leading up and left to the thin and tweaky finish of Dummkopf. Supposedly this ups the grade, maybe to a legitimate 12C, rather than claiming the grade just because you used bad beta. Anyhow, I didn't have time to invest all that, and wanted to go for the sheer thing, so I'd stop at the anchor and sport solo the route, leaving another potential project for the future if I get around to it. I warmed up by rope soloing satisfaction to re-rememberize the moves, then top rope soloed satisfaction, and then I actually free soloed satisfaction. Somehow, the thin holds in the crux just felt larger. The footholds felt better, and my balance on the lower sections felt more secure. I found more logical beta at the start of the difficulties, and the sloper which once caused me anxiety almost felt like a jug. Meanwhile, the finger jam in that vertical crack above the crux sequence felt so secure that I could have pulled on it instead of just using it for balance. Progress indeed. I was feeling fit and competent. While all this went on, I chatted with a couple who'd been hiking by, and felt they felt quite amused with my shenanigans. You're gonna what? Do you mind if we watch? No, nah, not at all. Could we, like, film it for you or something? Sure. Here's my camera. And as I was rope soloing the route, we'd began having a conversation the whole time, and by the time I actually soloed the line, they were well steeped in all the right lingo. 
Damn, man. You made that hand jam look solid as hell, and you floated straight through that crux. I'm so proud of those guys. Uh, they picked it up fast. Stoke is infectious, wherever it comes from. So next, I rope-soloed the route to get my camera back and walked over to Bottle Up Warrior. That's four laps of 512 already. Once I arrived at Bottled Up Warrior, as per standard protocol, I soloed the line roped, then top rope soloed it, and then to make sure everything felt grand, I managed to get a belay from a friendly climber. While I climbed securely and solid, I hit about 90% of pump on the way up. Mind you, this was my seventh lap of 512 for the day, and most of that was with my damn raggedy shoes untied per normal as a standard practice protocol, and my right big toe was just just barely starting to show. Well, I had to admit, there's no way I could solo this climb as my eighth lap of 512 for the day. Disappointed, I left. Even though there was a small tug at my heart because I didn't want to leave the region, without such an easy and ready-to-go tick. But I had to admit, I was in no condition to solo the line. Back to the crash pad it was, to pack my things and prepare for leaving. Okay, everybody, hey out there. Um, it is now Christmas Eve, and uh, Dad liked this little magic box of mine so much that he couldn't stand it, and we had to get him one of his own. So uh, Santa Claus brought that today. What do you think about it? Awesome, bud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're about to uh, write him up a bunch of instructions on how to record, and that'll be a lot of fun. So uh, speaking of recording, um, let me know what you think about these little segues that I've been doing. I'm not super fixated on doing that or not doing that. It's just been a fun little experiment for me, so... Uh, after this last little recording, we're going to go back to the usual stuff that I get off of my uh, podcast music service. So in the meantime, one more recording. As I arose to head home, I had two realizations. Firstly, that Foster Falls is off of I-24, which means it's more or less in line with the way back home. I can make a quick detour, swing into the crag, and maybe solo up Bottled Up Warrior if all felt well. Uh, second realization was not so positive. I realized that my hands were useless claws that couldn't fully close. 
After four days of relatively hard climbing, and seven laps of 512 on the previous day, I didn't even want to grasp my car keys. It was as if I'd suddenly transform into a rock-climbing form of Zoidberg for the morning. Still, there's no harm in taking the fingers for a walk to see how it felt. I could rope solo the route in sections from bolt to bolt and have the option to bail if it all went to hell. So I rode over to the mean mug and snagged a large coffee and a blueberry muffin. Standard sending fuel, you see. As I drove, my body began to wake up. Almost as if it had been in some sort of offline stasis mode when I first sat up in the morning. My fingers felt crusty but not totally useless. I hiked into the route with speed to try and further warm up my body, threw down my pack, unfurled my kit, and immediately got to work. Holy shit, this thing actually feels good right now. I'll be damned. I cleaned the route and pulled the rope to yank my harness up to the anchors. Game the fuck on. Pulling on my good shoes and pulling on the route, I reflected on how absolutely tanked my body was. This was my fifth day on, but still, I felt more than good enough for the task at hand. Brushing those thoughts away, I immediately flipped the switch and swung into the climb. I rested before the roof, made the big blind stretch around the lip, cut my feet, and launched into it. Big pulls from big holds with specific body tension led me around the lip, hit the rounded side of the hold, then the inside cut of the uh, in-cut side of the hold, swapped my feet out to the left, popped the right hand up to one even better hold, then cut both feet straight across the void beneath the roof to stick the next toe hold. Then I danced up to a good rest jug. With my good shoes on, I felt like Superman this time. I sat on that hold, monitored fatigue and my recharge rate. I wasn't really pumped, but there's no reason to skip a resting opportunity when you've got one. Once I hit the point of diminishing returns on that recovery, I launched into the flake feature which defined the crux. I spragged two fingers and my thumb into the divot at the end of that flake, smeared my right toe, and then cranked around the corner to the hidden sidewards bucket. And I popped over to the next horizontal break, which gave me a brief shakeout, followed by an odd gaston, a moderate crimp, and then the anchors. It was done, and I was back to my car by 11 a.m., with plenty of time for the drive back to Chicago. I had work in the morning. It's, uh... It's kind of wild to think, but Bottled Up Warrior was my hardest solo of this season at 512B, and yet, I did it in the furthest, most beat-down state of fatigue that I'd experienced during the entirety of the fall season, and yet, it still felt solid as hell. I had that route on unholy lockdown, and it felt absolutely solid despite waking up with lobster claws instead of hands. Ultimately, This goes to prove something which I'd suspected might be the case before the season began. With all this new fitness, 12A is not only sub-maximal for me as a route, 
but also as a solo. Essentially, what this signified was that all the solos from this season were moderates, which would be easily repeatable. Whereas in the past, soloing 512 was the end result of months of scouting and weeks of practice. This season began with weekends of scouting, then a morning of practice, followed by sending the next day. And in the end, I soloed three five twelves in the space of three days, while utterly fatigued, and none of them took more than about 90 minutes to dial in well enough that they met the pre-flight checklist. This season has really developed me as a soloist. My intention to build my base instead of pushing forward really paid off in a lot of ways. I could see that now, looking back over the past couple of months. With a new layer of technique and tactics and ability on top of the fitness that Lattice's training protocols had given me, I'd become a whole new machine. And three years before the season, I had only soloed seven 512s. Then I turned around and soloed eight 512s in two months. That's two months to match what had happened in the previous three years. It's absolutely bonkers, and totally mind-blowing, at least to me, personally. I doubled my repertoire in the space between the start of October and the end of November. Kind of makes me wonder, what's next? I've got all winter to train like a masochist and come out swinging in the springtime. This season of the process might be over. <laughs> but I'm just getting started. Holy hell, y'all, that concludes the first season of The Process, and thank you all so much for listening and for the support you've given me. I hope this episode gives y'all some stoke and motivation to launch into the new year, and remember, you don't need a new year to have resolution. You only need resolve, and that's a practice skill. That's your 4%. So set yourself up for success, clear out the obstacles, and remember that hard things are just mental training. Discomfort. Is an opportunity for learning, and difficulties are where our hearts are forged. A fine sword isn't crafted at room temperature. It's heated by flame and beaten with a hammer. Until next time, click that subscribe button, tell your friends, share the show on all of your accounts, follow me on Instagram, like the page on Facebook, and downvote me on Reddit. For those of you looking for more ways to get on board the Mojo train, you can find me at thefreesoloist.com, where I've got some videos, media, and a contact page. If you want me to do a speaking event at your climbing gym, just forward that booking page to whomever's in charge of the place. I've got a slideshow and some good material already prepared. And uh, one of these earlier episodes was a, a recording of when I did the same thing for my local climbing gym. That was the on-site run. We all know that we fuck up the on-site run a little bit, so... 
all the next ones are going to be even better. So uh, that's Instagram, at FreeSoloist. Videos at Vimeo.com slash FreeSoloist. Facebook paid for the show is Facebook.com slash FreeSoloist. Uh, noting a pattern here. Uh, you won't find me on Twitter because I talk too damn much for a 255 character limit. Additionally, you won't hear any dubstep here because we're trying to put the rock back in climbing. Related note, I get musics and sound effects from podcastmusic.com, but on this episode, as some of y'all might have figured out, I threw some of my own inept noodlings into the segue portions. I'm alright, but I can't seem to hold it together for longer than about 30 or 60 seconds. Which is perfect, because that's about all I need here. Anyhow, if y'all blow this stuff up and make it so huge that I can quit my gerb and sustain myself, I'll have a lot more free time. So I promise that I'll devote some of that to getting guitar lessons from a professional. Hey everybody, one uh, quick last minute detail. A new band that I discovered, Diz Tord. That's D-I-Z-T-O-R-D. They gave me permission to close out this season finale with one of their tracks called Modern World. So do those guys a favor, show them some love. That's D-I-Z-T-O-R-D. Look them up on Spotify and uh, I'll include links to all of their social media and to their music in the show notes. Really good people, really uh, kind. Um, he was pretty cool to talk to when he uh, reached out for this this uh, special request. So uh, anyway, back to the uh, outro that I already had recorded. Thanks. Anyhow, back on script. Um, once again, that's Instagram, Vimeo, and Facebook.com slash FreeSoloist. All of my media has links from the main page, uh, freesoloist.com. Just go there and, sorry, thefreesoloist.com. Just click around there and explore. John Long is an inspiration, and Michael Reardon is my spirit animal. I have no desire to be the next Alex Honnold. I just want to be the first Austin Howell. You only get one shot on this dust ball. I'm going to make it a damn good one. There's no feeling on Earth quite like the feeling of being alive. That's something I've developed in spades over the years. So just like Hans Florin doesn't need you to become a speed climber to learn from his book, you don't need to become a free soloist from listening to this cast. Just pick and choose from the lessons and tips and tricks that can bring more peace and enjoyment into your life. And one final note for the season. Climbing is fun. Nobody cares how hard you climb. And if they do, they probably shouldn't. Life is as long as it is short. You only get one shot on this dust ball, so you'd better well make it a good one. If you're spending life pursuing things that don't bring you joy, well, when we all started climbing, we did it because it felt like the most fun thing on earth. I feel sorry for anyone that's lost sight of that. So get out there. Have some fun. Spread good mojo wherever you can. Happy climbing, my friends. And happy fucking new year. May your resolutions be as frivolous as they are fun, and may your resolve never fail. May you have the will to stand up again whenever it does, time and time again, for as long as you may live.
Stop the music. Stop. Stop the music. Um, am I the only one that caught on at that seemed kind of uh, fake as fuck? Um, okay, right. Basically, I wanted to end on some kind of uh, inspirational tirade or what have you, but after that recording, I've been, I've been doing a lot of driving. I've had a lot of time to think. Uh, let's see... You know, kind of like my climbing, this drive was completely solo, and this episode's ending is just too damn shiny. Uh, in a lot of ways, this episode isn't just the season's ending, but it's also a rumination about the entire past year. I mean, come on, I'm letting this thing out on New Year's Day. Uh, the past year was far from perfect. It started off rocky as hell. So I can't honestly end it like that, um, given current circumstances. Uh, the total drive time from Chicago down to Mississippi over to Houston and then all the way back up through the great state of corn is 28 hours, not including food and fuel stops for the full circuit. So, as mentioned in the previous episode, thinking is something I find important. As mentioned in episode number two, another thing I find important is being earnest. So, uh, firstly, let's just take care of one brief detail. So I'd like to be care uh, clear on one point that I think might be a bit ambiguous and thus might make me seem like I'm coming across bitter. Um, <laughs> I've got a running joke in the intro about sponsors, uh, and that's because I kind of think sponsorship is a joke at this point. I really couldn't give two shits about it. You see, I've already got this sick sponsorship where uh, I show up at this building at 8 a.m. Yeah, on Monday morning, and if I stay there till 5 p.m., and if I repeat that until Friday, and keep doing that every week, a little bit of money just shows up in my bank account. It's the damnedest fucking thing. See, um, I'm very fortunate in that I actually like my job. A lot of people don't. Sponsorship would definitely be a delight for those people. But as for now, I'm actually happy for the first time in a very, very long time. And that was very hard won. And, uh, that brings me back on track. I don't need happiness. I just want to be satisfied with life and accepting of myself. Acceptance. That's my moonshot. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago? fly the Atlantic. Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon.
choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. One year ago, I spent Christmas alone on the floor of my apartment with a bottle of whiskey. I had been so depressed for the previous months that I never bothered to acquire furniture, even after six months in the place. This uh, bipolar 2 thing, it's like, you know, in the cartoons when you have those shoulder angels, you know, the little devil and the little angel, and they're both telling you things to do. Well, it's like that, except they both suck, and they uh, both dress up like angels. They put a little halo up there to hide the horns. Mania sits on one side saying, oh, man, this sounds like a bad idea. Let's do it. While uh, depression sits on the other side going, man, this sounds like a good idea. Let's not do it. So, um, basically, a lot of carefully planned self-sabotage had led me to that point in life. And then uh, reality came crashing into my head like a hammer. That uh, many-month-long manic streak had led me to act in ways that were counter to my own values. And depression made sure that I could think of nothing else as soon as that realization hit me. Actually, um, I think crashing my head into a hammer probably would have stopped hurting a lot faster. Waking up is extremely painful. And that's the crux of mental health. From the outside looking in, it's easy to think, just snap out of it. But waking up is hard, because once you do, you find it hard to see yourself as anything other than your failings. As if they are your true core being. Some worry that I and others are soloing for our egos. <laughs> One friendly commenter who goes by Boots left some kind words recently. And he said, God damn, man. I hate to ego stroke, but you're the fucking dude. <laughs> no worries, my friend. It's virtually impossible to stoke my ego, because five minutes later, I'll remember that one time I fucked something up six years ago, and uh, I'll be fixating on that instead. But uh, the truth is, in reality, our identities aren't those failings. But rather, we are the inner core being which sees those failings. It's analogous to meditation. Meditation isn't perfect focus. Meditation is noticing when our mind drifts. Our core being is that thing noticing when we drift, not the drifting itself. Depression replays failings, and that can be extremely overwhelming. Like uh, when we climbers try to take our first leader falls. Some well-meaning friends will say, just snap out of it and let go. But it's not that easy, is it?
letting go may be extremely helpful to future progress, but if the mind is overwhelmed too much to do so... Hmm. Waking up is letting go. When reality comes crashing down, morality can become twisted against us, and we may feel that we deserve some sort of punishment for all the mistakes that we've made. That's a, a common theme in depression. Our past actions make us feel unworthy. That sense of unworthiness and self-hate won't take us anywhere that we want to go, though. Never did for me. Or for anyone else that I know. But even knowing this, disengaging that loop once it gains momentum is often too much to do in the moment. Hell, as y'all heard earlier in this episode, letting go of that fear when I'm trad climbing is still too much for me. But you also saw how I was able to work with it. Just a little bit. Admittedly, that was a very extreme example. It's not wise for most folks to terrorize themselves to that degree. But I'd practiced this on-the-wall form of letting go so that I could get away with that this time. I don't always get it right. I have a notion of the tools that I need to use, but... Taking them off the wall into my daily life is a bit... Well, it's, it's not straightforward. It's like if you've learned to take leader falls inside at the climbing gym, and then you go out and you're sport climbing on real rock. Well, that practice on the inside, it wasn't completely useless. It lets you know how to practice when you get outdoors again. But you still have to do that practice. How many times have you walked through a doorway today? <laughs> You're like me, you probably have no idea. Similarly, we have no idea how many negative thoughts have drifted through our minds on this particular day. They're painful and uncomfortable, so we try to avoid them is uh, another issue. Kind of like a rock climber who fear, feels that fear of falling and rushes to the next anchor point to clip. When we're overwhelmed by those destructive patterns, we can think of nothing but escaping that situation. But this is not an all-or-nothing medium. It's not zero or 140. No. Discomfort is a universal sensation which manifests in many different ways. Through a decade of soloing, I've inoculated myself to some forms of discomfort. Not always in the soloing itself, mind you, but in the training and preparation that I've developed for that purpose. I had worked with my mind, and to be honest, only recently as it started to bear fruit. I'd known for a long time that the lessons learned on the rock could transfer into life, but I didn't quite understand how to make that happen most effectively. Instead, those skills would transfer into my life by accident, or rather than deliberation. Three and a half, maybe four years ago now, I very nearly died in Yosemite. <laughs> no, 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 not, not like that. 
It was on a rope. Long story. Anyhow, the impact from that head-first fall sent a concussion through my cranium, which packed sufficient force what for removing my equilibrium and the uh, hearing in my left ear. Oh, that's my little bird back there. So, uh, <laughs> we have cats in this house, and uh, I'm mobile recording and what have you. So, the bird and I are sharing a room currently, so that she can have safe refuge from uh, becoming cat food. <clears throat> so uh, if you hear some interruptions, <laughs> it would just be a unidentified bird emergency. Anyway, that fall had sufficient force to remove my equilibrium and the hearing in my left ear. Don't worry, guys. I'm mixing these podcasts in mono instead of stereo. Anyhow, the hearing on that side was replaced with a perpetual ringing that never, ever stops. Coming out of the hospital, I thought that I would never hear the sound of silence again. Everywhere I went, it was just noise, noise, noise. And it seemed like the louder the room I was in, the louder the ringing would grow to compensate. And I think also there was a lot of rushing thoughts that came in about that same time. Recently, for the first time in maybe four years, I heard silence again. You know that moment after you park your car and turn off the key? When suddenly everything quiets. I only noticed that I had lost that moment when I regained it a couple of weeks ago. Now mind you, <laughs> I'm far from being some guru who sits on a mountaintop cushion chanting Om. I'm not going to quote one of those stupid meme photos which show trees and pills and says, This is an antidepressant, and this is shit, respectively. Uh, no, fuck that. When the storm was at its greatest, when I came face to face with the existential threat of my own mind working against itself... Those pills, that medication, gave me the first foothold of quiet, and there is no shame in that. That little tiny piece of quiet, almost a year ago, was something I'd not had, and that little first foothold of quiet is what allowed me to build and build until finally I regained the sound of silence. With injury, whether it be physical or psychological, it's hard to see the way back to who you were. So for me, I choose not to. Instead, I see what I have, and I work outward from there. So I stuck my nose to the grindstone, and I trained. If it seems like I'm absolutely maniacal for training, it's because that's the one thing that I always have. Even when I have nothing else. Even when I don't have fucking furniture in my apartment. <laughs> so I trained. And I focused all my efforts towards deepening that sense of peace that I feel on the wall 
for the purpose of taking that piece to the next level. What I didn't realize then was that it would finally give me the skills I'd need to climb my way out of this hole. I'd trained myself, and I'd struggled before, but the combination of self-work along with that life-saving medication finally brought me to the place where I'd felt peace for the first time since Yosemite, after months and months of practice. Only now, as I write this, have I come to wonder that, you know, maybe that input pact shook something loose that was much more important than just my equilibrium. Hindsight is a hell of a thing, you know? It, um... I was all wigged out that I would never hear the sound of silence again, but... Maybe the quiet that I lost wasn't something auditory. Maybe it was something much more fundamental than that. <sighs> See, I have this theory of mental training. The idea is to meet yourself where you are. You know, think, if you had a friend who was afraid of spiders, you wouldn't fill an entire bathtub full of spiders and say, hey, jump in. <laughs> hey, snap out of it. Get rid of your fear of spiders. Hey, let go. Take the whipper. It's all the fucking same. And it's all equally futile. Yeah. You can't jump straight to where you want to be. You have to meet yourself where you are. Somewhere that the obstacle which is holding you back, maybe it's gravity is only a 4 out of 10, instead of the full weight of it. You know, there's these sick and destructive patterns that we hold in our minds. Sometimes they're incredibly overwhelming. But sometimes there's something less. They're that 4 out of 10. But to catch it, when it's only a 4 out of 10, something manageable, it's uncomfortable. But you can focus on it. And you can work with it. To find that 4 out of 10 point, it's not super obvious. It's not beating you over the head and frightening you as much. So... We have to pay attention to every time we pass through a metaphorical doorway. We have to notice each negative thought that goes through our head so that we may create a small space after which we evaluate and decide, uh, how bad's this one? Can I work with this one? And if we decide that this one is moderate enough, well, I remind myself that you made a mistake, but you have learned. And that's the thing. These moments of shame and what have you, it's because we're looking back with a new mind that understands not to do that again. We've learned. So, rather than let my mind repeat my failings on a sick type of autopilot, uh, instead, 
I deliberately repeat that thought under my own direction, just as I would repeat an uncomfortable move while practicing for a solo. I repeat that move and say, you are solid. You feel the rock. You feel your strength. This foothold is actually quite good. Sitting on this handhold, my strength isn't fading that much. I was just anxious because it was unfamiliar. I repeat the thought and say, you have made a mistake, but you have learned. You have learned, and thus you don't need to worry about doing that again. You have learned, and you may let go. On the wall, I let go of anxiety. I am solid. I am controlled. And off the wall, I let go of that pain. I have learned. I may let go. A move may give me anxiety. So I repeat that move while turning my focus inward to the body awareness as I repeatedly remind myself that I'm so uh, solid. A thought may give me anxiety. So I take control and repeat that thought deliberately. With each repetition, I remind myself that I can let it go because I have learned my lesson. That's why it hurts. Because now I'm on the other side of it, and I can see it, because now I've learned better. So the fact that it hurts, in a way, is the exact signal, which means I can let it go. It's a 4 out of 10. I repeat that thought again. Let it go. You've learned. Now it's a 3 out of 10. Let it go. You've learned. Now it's a 2 out of 10. Now it's a 1 out of 10. <laughs> now we're talking. Just as I would gain control of a move on the rock, so when I solo it in the future, now that thought won't tear me apart. For those of us who aren't naturally endowed with it, I believe that self-acceptance is a learned skill. Now, one piece of wisdom that I've gained along the way was actually from uh, Chris Hampton's Power Company podcast. As he once stated there with one of his guests, skills are built through reps. As most of you will note, stretches spent with family aren't always filled with action in every moment. There are spells of quiet where you're left with your own thoughts, and being left with my own thoughts hasn't always been pleasant, so between those hours and hours spent on the road driving this long circuit, and I've practiced a lot of reps, and as I did, I think I chipped the rust off a few derelict portions of my brain, hence uh, this post-episode soliloquy. Some act as if soloing is the devil's art. Some think it's about as remarkable as taking the trash out to the curb. And yet some others think that the life of a soloist imparts some sort of ancient wisdom. But that last one has always made me bristle more than the other two. I think it's because 
I feel like soloing itself hasn't granted me any particular insight whatsoever. If I have any insight, it's due to the preparation. And that preparation, not only can it be done by any climber, but it can be done by any human. According to legend, and mind you, I have no way of knowing if this legend is true, but I love the allegory nonetheless. But anyhow, according to legend, John Backer once pulled up to a gas station near Yosemite. Unknowingly, another climber pulled up to the neighboring pump, and after a few moments, he recognized John and couldn't help but blurting out, Holy shit, you're John Backer! How do you solo all that crazy shit? John reflected for a moment and took the pump out of his truck. Turning to the other climber, he said simply, You're soloing right now. And drove off into the sunset. I like to stick to that perspective. You're soloing right now. Now. I'm down, but I'm not out. I survived so far, who knows how, as my last. Here hits the ground I'm the last one here That's still around Blind faith That's how fools make deals Hearts break When the truth's revealed Modern world That's how the rules Have changed For me Modern world In flames I'm free In a crowd Late at night Across a smoke-filled room She slithers by Arm in arm With some guy As I felt the love Inside me die Cold truth As she looked my way, my lips move as she hears me say, Modern world, that's how the rules have changed for me. Modern world, the past goes up in flames. I'm free.
to space Wondering which road out of here to take New ground far from here Build a brand new life in my own way No more trying to raise the rats No more crying, no more looking back Modern world, that's how the rules have changed for me Modern world, the past goes up in flames I'm free